Today we conclude our brief series on Back to the Bible. Over the past weeks we've thought of the Bible for moral foundations, the Bible for spiritual food, the Bible for personal freedom, and in this next half hour we're going to think of the Bible for vocational faithfulness. If there's one concern above another which weighs heavily upon my heart, it is that there is so much unfaithfulness in the pulpits of our land. Statistics indicate that in one of our great denominations, approximately 1,000 pastors are annually leaving the ministry to take up secular work. The reasons for this are numerous, but one major one is that many of them have no real message in the first place, or else they've lost it somewhere along the line. Now, what does it mean to be vocationally faithful? We're going to discover this in just a moment. But first of all, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Read with me from verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me, unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. These opening words of Paul's letter to the Galatians constitute one of the most solemn and severe attacks on defectors from the gospel that we find anywhere in the New Testament. Indeed, the apostle is so stirred by righteous indignation that he is prepared to curse the very angels of heaven were they to be responsible for introducing another gospel. Now, in a day of theological confusion and moral bankruptcy, no words could be more relevant or reassuring. So let us consider, first of all, God's provision of the only gospel. The apostle marvels that these fickle Galatians had so soon defected from the gospel of God's provision. Now, there are two phrases in these verses which help us to understand the nature of God's provision. First of all, the grace of Christ, and secondly, the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the good news of God's redeeming act in Christ, whereby he has made possible through his death at Calvary's cross a means of deliverance from sin and from this evil world that we might live to the will of God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You can search all man-made religions, all man-made philosophies, all man-made movements, and you will find nothing to equal such a gospel as this. 
Only God could have conceived, initiated, and consummated such a redeeming work as we see manifested in the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. But in the second place, the gospel of Christ represents the revealing act of God in Christ. Heaven's message is called the gospel of Christ. And Paul goes right on to say, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The distinctiveness of the Christian religion is that it is not man's search after God, but rather God's search after man. Once again, it is he who has taken the initiative to break into time and to reveal to us in the person of Jesus Christ his heart of love and his redeeming purpose. Paul beautifully argues this in the Roman epistle where he says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see, the natural mind could never have conceived such a way of salvation. He couldn't climb up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, nor could he go into the depths of hell to bring up Christ again in resurrection. He was totally dependent upon God. God took the initiative and followed through to the consummation. Only through the revelation of the gospel and the illumination of the Holy Spirit can anyone understand the true nature of God's provision of the gospel. Hence the need for the word of God, this eternal truth that we've been talking about throughout these weeks. But having stated this, Paul proceeds to speak solemnly of man's perversion of the only gospel. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. An examination of these words makes it plain that there is a twofold process by which the gospel is perverted. First of all, man deserts the gospel of Christ. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The Greek word for removed is one regularly used for a deserter, a turncoat. They will gladly listen to the preaching of the gospel until it conflicts with their own philosophy of life and they're off to some other gospel, leaving the only true gospel. Let me illustrate this by introducing one of the most popular names in the field of philosophy and theology today. Professor Paul Tillich, who passed away some little while ago, left us a legacy that will take centuries to combat if the Lord tarries that long. In a little book entitled The Theology of Paul Tillich, the professor has written the first chapter as an intellectual autobiography. In his introductory words, Tillich speaks of himself as a romanticist as well as an objector to all forms of authority. 
He goes on to tell us that he developed this outlook to life because of the religious conservatism of his parents in early years. In other words, there came a point in his life when he deserted the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, he lived and taught and died as an apostle of another gospel. Now this will be made even more evident in our next thought. For when a man deserts the gospel of Christ, the inevitable follows. Namely, man distorts the gospel of Christ. Paul says, there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. That word pervert is an extremely strong one. Literally, it means to reverse or to change to its very opposite. These Galatians had perverted the gospel of Christ by substituting a gospel of righteousness by works for the doctrine of reconciliation through the free forgiveness which God has provided through faith in Jesus Christ. And this has always been true down through the ages. When a person deserts the gospel, he quickly distorts it in order to rationalize his self-chosen philosophy of life. This, of course, was true of Tillich. Professor Bernard Ram has evaluated Tillich's theology under the following guidelines. A. Tillich was not a biblical theologian. After reading his theology, you wonder where in the Bible he could have ever found such notions as he taught. B. Tillich radically altered the thought calculus of Scripture. Tillich took most of the articles of the Christian faith and so adjusted them to the demands of philosophy and metaphysics that they have lost their personalistic character. C. Tillich reduced faith to existential insight. Tillich said that God is the ground of all being. What he really meant by this is obscure. But what he denied by this is not. Tillich denied all biblical supernaturalism. Nels Foray, an outstanding liberal, called Tillich the most dangerous theologian alive. Then D. Tillich was an anti-supernaturalist. The virgin birth is an obvious, legendary story. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, literally understood, becomes compounded into blasphemy, he said. Prayer as a conversation between two persons, the divine and the human, is blasphemous and ridiculous, he declared. Then E. Tillich denied the incarnation as it is historically understood. Tillich's doctrine of God hovers between atheism in that God is not a person and pantheism in that God is the ground of all being. And in doing this, he excludes the incarnation of God in Christ. Now, my listening friend, could there be a more outstanding illustration of the perversion of the gospel in our day and generation? And yet, this is what happens in varying degrees when men and women desert the gospel of Christ. The God is dead movement that was popular some while ago is also a result of the perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, Dr. Bernard Ram, in an article published in Eternity, helpfully analyzes the movement in modern theology. He points out that there is a sense in which God is philosophically dead. 
beginning with the Scottish philosopher David Hume and reinforced by the greatest of all modern philosophers, Immanuel Kant. And right down to our day, philosophy has been entirely stripped of metaphysics. And because this element in philosophy is dead, therefore God must be dead. Philosophers no longer need the concept of the being of God to explain the universe or knowledge. The modern attitude is singularly revealed in a reply from a philosophy professor who, when asked whether he were an atheist or not, exclaimed, I'm so bored with the question, I'm too bored to be an atheist. Professor Ram goes on to say, God is culturally dead. In our culture, God does nothing. We do not need him in science. We do not need him in technology. We do not need him in medicine. We explain things theoretically by science. We solve problems by technology. And we heal our bodies by medicine. Hence, modern culture is cold towards Christianity. God, in effect, is culturally dead. Once more, God is theologically dead. The world has come of age. It knows that the universe is not run by demons or angels, providence or prayers, but by scientific law. Therefore, man must think of the world as if God were not there. As a result of such philosophic, cultural and theological thinking, many of our religious leaders have deserted the only gospel and are in the process of distorting it. So we have one group using existentialism to rebuild a Christian theology, another group who say that Christianity is identification with a contemporary struggle for social justice and so have tried to whip up new life into the old horse of the social gospel. And yet a smaller group has said that man's real problems are mental and emotional and that the Christian church ought to be concerned with psychotherapy instead of the old-fashioned gospel. It's into this context, however, that Paul comes with a thundering authority and declares, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed or damned, separated from Christ. Now, as we've seen before in these studies, the motto of the reformers was, Ad fontes, back to the fountain." back to the sources, back to the origins, back to the purity of truth. And we need to do that today. And this is exactly what Paul urges in these opening words of his Galatian epistle. In other words, he calls for three things. First, a return to the grace of God. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The test of the gospel is grace. If the message excludes grace or mingles with grace any foreign element as a means of our justification or sanctification or glorification, the preaching is under the anathema of God. Grace rules out anything and everything that man can say or do in regard to this matter of salvation. Paul's great word is this, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. And again, we're saved by grace and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Secondly, a return to the word of God. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be damned. 
The preaching of the gospel has only one textbook, and that is the Bible. Any other preaching, however plausible, which does not measure up to a sound exegesis of scripture is strange fire and must be categorically rejected. Oh, I say to you preachers who are listening to me right now, get back to expository preaching. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Preach the word of God. And in that word will be the gospel. And in that gospel, the grace of God. There is no other way to bring this nation to its knees. No other way to bring the church into revival than a return to expository preaching. And then finally, a return to the church of God. Paul speaks of the churches of Galatia right here in verse 2 and describes such Christians as communities as representing those who've been delivered from sinfulness and worldliness in order that they might do the will of God forever and ever. To belong to any church where these standards are not maintained by belief and behavior is to be out of the will of God and therefore well on the way to a perverted gospel. One of my great concerns as I crisscross the world today is to find people moving away from the church into little groups where they set up their own teaching and their own form of worship. Instead of coming back to the Bible and to the local church as God intended it, John Calvin said the church of Jesus Christ exists for the ministry of the word of God, for the administration of the sacraments and for the discipline of its membership. I look with great suspicion upon para-church groups who stand to substitute what Jesus Christ called his church. And I want to tell you that until he comes back again, the only thing that's always going to stand when movements have come and gone is the true church of Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. So we have seen what we mean by God's provision of the gospel of Christ. We have seen what we mean by man's perversion of the gospel of Christ. And we have seen that it all stands or falls with the word of God. Our subject then has been vocational faithfulness. Let me ask you, preacher, have you been vocationally faithful? Have you been true to the word of God? Have you been true to the grace of God? Have you been true to the church of God? And then I ask you, my friend, who are the ostensible members of churches, have you been true to the word of God? Have you been true to the grace of God? Have you been true to the church of God? For the wise person, there's only one choice, and that is the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only gospel. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Dad, this was a challenging word today, and you closed your message with a word from Joshua, the leader who challenged Israel, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. 
With so many Gospels out there, we do need to make a choice. How can we be sure we're not choosing a counterfeit? David, that possibility is true. So much so, the burden of argumentation in the message I have just given actually addresses that very fact because Paul comes back to a church he had founded on the pure, simple gospel and he says, I marvel, I'm absolutely astounded that you have moved away from the gospel that I delivered unto you. And if it happened in his day, it can happen in our day. And alas, alas, it's happening all across our country, including the pulpit. Well, Dad, it's something that Paul marveled at, and it's something that we marvel at, too. But why do some people pervert the gospel of God's grace? Because the gospel absolutely devastates our self-esteem, reduces us to what we are, sinners, beggars, at the foot of the cross, begging for mercy. And we can't take that. That's why the gospel was a laughing stock to the Greeks, the rationalists, and a stumbling block to the Jews, the religionists. But God said, in the simple gospel is both the wisdom and the power of God. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.